Good evening. Thank you for having me. Um, we're going to be in Jude. We're going to try to go through the whole book of Jude, or letter. Uh, There's really a more justifiable name for it. <laughs> it's only one chapter, so you can either call the verses verses or the verses chapters. <laughs> uh, okay, for those who don't know me, which I don't know if there's anyone in here that fits that description, but uh, I am <laughs> I am Jeffrey Swindoll. Uh, to settle it once and for all, at this point you are allowed to call me Jeffrey or Jeff. <laughs> if you want, if you want to call me Mr. Swindoll, that's fine too. I still I still call uh, Mr. King, Coach King. I don't call him Dave or David or whatever. One time I had to call Mr. Stemmer Scott when we were doing commentary for a football game. And that felt very weird. <laughs> and I don't think I've ever done that again. Uh, anyway, uh, Mr. Adwa asked me to teach through all of Jude. And before I begin, before I forget, I'd like to recommend actually an album that uh, is directly related to our study tonight, a musical album. And uh, this actually made me more excited to preach through Jude because, uh, well, one, I really like to preach, but uh, this album... It's made by one of my favorite bands. They're called Sayos, which is the Greek word for psalms or songs. And they actually made an entire album based on the book of Jude. It's kind of hard to describe the genre of it. Uh, if I had to pick, it's more similar to what we would call a rock opera. <laughs> but it's through the book of Jude. It sounds very weird. Uh, I think if you were if you did theater here or still like that stuff you would probably like this but anyway it's like 30 it's like a 30 minute album um so check it out maybe when you drive home today there will probably be a lot of traffic depending on if we still have people you know waving cuban flags around and stuff <laughs> so yeah plenty of time anyway uh we have this whole letter to cover so i will not dilly dally anymore um yeah we're in jude so make sure you have that open um, let's pray, and then we'll read through it. Heavenly Father, we ask that you build us up in holy faith, as Jude says in this book, that we would be kept in the love of God through this study and meditation on your word. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock, our redeemer. Amen. Okay, let's read. I'm reading from ESV, by the way, obviously. Just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who do not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, 
he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning, unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the, holy, of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. All right, that concludes the reading. It's only 25 verses, but man, that's intense. It's so packed with really valuable things to consider. Uh, there's all kinds of emotion. There's all kinds of history, spiritual conflict, uh, pretty confusing doctrine at times, to be honest. Um, so I'll try to take it verse by verse, section by section, so it's easiest to follow. I'll try not to jump around. Um, so first, who's the author? Well, verse, first part of verse one says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James. So that's who he's associated with. Second, who's the original audience? To those who are called, 
to those who are beloved in God the Father and to those who are kept for Jesus. All the same group, just different descriptions of them. So let's keep this in mind. There's always uh, that historic original audience, like the first people that Jude wrote this letter to. Uh, and that's pretty much the case with any piece of literature. You have to take that into consideration. But something special about the Bible is that we also read these scriptures because they're profitable for us too. And God superintended them for us to benefit from them and to be used for our lives too, even thousands of years later. So uh, a little phrase that I've heard that kind of summarizes that is the Bible wasn't written to us historically, but it was written it was written for us. So that includes this letter. Um, you can look at verse 1 and ask yourself, are you beloved in God the Father? Are you called by God? Are you kept for Jesus? Yes, this letter is for you. So um, third, something we can observe is the relationship between the author and the audience. And this is kind of scattered throughout the letter, so this will be one of those times where maybe I uh, move around a little bit, try, try to keep it to a minimum here. Um, but, um, so for example, the, uh, let me find it here. Okay. So verse two, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Um, so obviously this is not a, this is not a hostile letter. You know, at the beginning of Galatians, Paul's like, who has bewitched you? Which is, you know, like not as nice of a tone as this is. Um, so in that letter, Paul had a certain issue he was dealing with. So in one way, that, all, that shows us the relationship between the author and the audience, but it also shows us kind of the, the occasion or what's going on uh, that, uh, get, that uh, made this letter rise up in, in a way. Verse 3, he calls, well, repeatedly in this letter, you heard he calls them beloved, um, which again is an indication of this kind of familial uh, family talk. Verse 3, Beloved, I was very eager to write to you, very eager to write to you about our common salvation. Um, so notice the emphasis I'm putting on each of those words. Okay, verse 17, it also says, you must remember, which indicates, you must remember the predictions of the apostles, which indicates that the author knows that these people have a, a base knowledge, right? He's not like, well, I don't know if you learned anything, so let me go through the base he says, you must remember, you must recall what I already know that you've learned in the past. See, uh, verse 21 or verse 20 and 21. Again, beloved, he says, your most holy faith. I mean, that's quite the quite the compliment, is it? <laughs> it's pretty high marks. Um, he says he also says in verse uh, 20 through 21, our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's we all have that relationship with Jesus. That's not always the case in the way people talk in the New Testament. But in this in this letter, it is. So it's a very intimate, passionate letter. Uh, and that also helps you understand the way you as a reader are supposed to appreciate these, these things for your life today. Okay, so let's go to, that's kind of introduction. Now let's go to uh, verse 3. This is a very crucial verse because the author literally says, this is why I wrote this letter. Uh, so we don't have to guess. We don't have to be like, oh, well. You know, what do you think the author wrote? The, no, th there's not what do you think. It's what <laughs> the author said it. So verse three, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I wish we could talk about those nice things. But I found it. I'm adding some words, of course. But I found it necessary <laughs> to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
So the author said it right there. What's the point of this book? I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's the point of the letter. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Um, so there's no doubt what should be like the main takeaway for us tonight. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So if you're like the note taker, you probably don't need me to tell you this, but you might want to <laughs> write that one down or underline it or something. Verse 3. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Okay, so the word contend is pretty loaded. Uh, and I don't always do this because I don't know Koine Greek myself. But listen to how this word sounds in the original Greek form. Epa agonizomai. Do you hear the word in there? What does it sound like? Agonizomai. Agonize. Yeah, agonize. Agony. Um, agonize for the faith. It's a struggle. It's a fight. It's, uh, you know, contend. I don't know. We don't really use that word that much. Maybe British people do because they're like, you know, they sound like smart and stuff. <laughs> but this is, this is telling us to agonize over the faith or fight for the faith, contend for the faith, defend the faith. Um, so the other aspect of this command is that it's the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So there's specification as to what the faith is. Uh, that's a big deal because, you know, you go to Barnes and Noble and you go to the section where it says faith and there's a bunch of not the faith once for all delivered to the saints in there. Right. <laughs> so when it says the faith, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, once for all delivered to the saints, it's clearly specifying exactly which faith we're referring to. Right. So uh, we're not fighting for just some belief or some generic sense of a faith in a higher power. Um, we're not fighting for Judeo-Christian values, which is a phrase you might hear a lot these days. Uh, I mean, I'm for those things. But the faith once for all delivered to the saints is, is Jesus Christ. Uh, and that's not always the case with people that say Judeo-Christian values. But I digress. Um, so this faith is specified. The common salvation Jude and his audience share. It's not just any faith or religion. It's the faith that was once delivered. It was delivered one time. It's the same faith God, God delivered to the saints many years ago. There's no updates. There's no modification. There's no modernization needed. God gave it once. The faith doesn't change. Now, we'll get more into this in verse 17, which mentions that the audience must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ told them. That gives even more specification as to what the, the faith is. Um, but... We'll get there. You know, yeah, spoiler alert right here. Jude is referring to the gospel message of Jesus that he gave to the apostles to relate to us to believe in. And what is the gospel message? Verse 21. Believe in the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That's the gospel message. The mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Verse 24. God will present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's always been the message. There's only one faith, one true religion, one true confession. Because there's only one God and one Savior. And that's what we're fighting for, contending for, agonizing over until Jesus returns. So let's go to verse 4. It says, uh, Certain people have crept in unnoticed who pervert the grace of God and deny Jesus. 
Yeah, because fighting implies that there's, that there's opposition, right? That there's an opponent or opponents. So again, look at verse 4. This tells us why we must contend for the faith. That's why it has that word for uh, in the Bible, like New Testament writing. It's kind of like saying because. Contend for the faith because certain people have crept in unnoticed. Um, so that would be the second thing I highlight or underline or whatever. That certain people have crept in unnoticed. And that's why we must contend for the faith. We must contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Um, because of that threat. Because of that opposition. Uh, in our midst. That's important too. It says crept in unnoticed. Meaning into the church. Um, it's, not hard to, it's not hard to realize there's opposition outside the church. But some people. I mean it, do, it does take. You know. That's a maturity pill to swallow. There's opposition in my church. That's scary. There's opposition in my heart. Right? So, I mean, if it's in our hearts individually, obviously there's going to be threats of opposition within the church filled with us, you know, with sinful hearts. So, um, if you're paying attention to what's going on with the craziness of the world outside of the church, there's obviously good reason to do that. And we are called to do that elsewhere in the Bible. But this is telling us to, to notice and to pay attention and to contend for the faith within the, the church that often go unnoticed. It's, it's sneaky. It's has crept in. So it's bad ideas, bad people infiltrating the church. Now, for whatever reason, this is what God has allowed. God is in control, and he has always been. And for his infinitely wise reasons, he's made it to be this way. Uh, and there's actually instances where even the disciples, where Jesus tells this parable to the disciples, where he says, the wheat and the chaff are going to grow next to each other. And it's hard to tell what's the real wheat and what's the, what's the useless stuff. And then Jesus says, don't worry about that, because at the end of the age, my angels will come and divide the real wheat and the chaff. And the chaff will be burned and the other wheat will be kept in the barn. So even Jesus was like, it's going to be hard to tell sometimes. And you're just going to have to learn to kind of deal with it. Uh, and there's a bunch of other teaching, too, about dealing with sin in the church. And this is one of those letters. Anyway, let's continue. Um, now, look at one of, the, one of the things that creeps in unnoticed. It says they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. Um, we are seeing that a lot today. And, you know, Jude was talking about it back then. Uh, it's obviously not a new problem. This is not like, whoa, whoa, America is going to a place like no one has ever been before. No, no, no. <laughs> he's, he's talking about it right here. People pervert the grace of God into sensuality. Are we saying that today? Yes. Did Jude see it 2,000 years ago? Yes. So it's not a new problem. It's the same spiritual conflict, same spiritual war. Um, but yeah, let's think of the examples in our day of this, perverting the grace of God into sensuality. We hear all kinds of justifications to say God's grace means this sexual immorality I want is good. And people who want to be sexually immoral tend to seek out, you know, people that will validate and affirm that about them. So obviously some guy pretending to be a Christian pastor saying sexual morality is fine. Those people are going to have a certain level of success and popularity because the they're just following their own sinful desires. So here's another one. Verse four. 
they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I personally emphasize this. It's not like the letter came with emphasis of it. But I think there's emphasis of only for a reason. Because, you know, you listen to some award show and people thank God all the time, right? But, you know, I think at this point in your life you realize, you know, it doesn't mean that much, right? <laughs> I thank God. And then they say, like, the F word, like, 40 times later. Like, one second later. It's like, okay, well, God has something to say about that stuff, too. Um, <laughs> I thank God for this music video where I'm, like, naked the whole time. It's like... Uh, so, saying they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ, uh, it, it specifies the exclusivity of Jesus. Only Jesus and exactly who Jesus is. Not just like some idea of him. Um, and there's all kinds of weird perversions and mental gymnastics people do to say Jesus' name, but not mean who the Bible means as Jesus. Uh, so... The crazy thing is that these people are not on the award show. It says these people are in the church. These people have crept in unnoticed to the church. Uh, so we, we've got to learn to live with this and to act accordingly. To learn how to respond to this. Because it's a reality. Um, it's naive for us to assume that our churches or our own hearts are invincible to this infiltration of bad people and bad ideas. Even Jesus' own inner circle had betrayal and false falsity. Even the churches planted by the apostles themselves, which is what we're reading about right now, had deceivers. People they appointed to be teachers that backstabbed them. Even God's own angels rebelled against him, which that's you know one of the examples that's later put here, I think, for obvious reasons. So that's where the author is going with the next few examples of this struggle that we have in this age before Jesus returns. The struggle we have between believers and non-believers. Those who are for God and those who are against him. So that's why in verse 5, this would be the next thing I, I highlight. The author, Jude, says, So, I want to remind you that Jesus, or the Lord, who saved the people, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. This is important because we need to, well, of course, all of it's important, um, but we need, to we need to avoid having a one-dimensional view of God or Jesus. This verse shows uh, two major things. Jesus saved the people from Egypt. Is that the end of the story? Jesus destroyed people in Egypt. Is that the whole story? It says Jesus saved the people from Egypt and afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So, of course, those are two things. There's a lot more to say about God, for sure. But I'm just saying, notice those two things. Some people are big fans of one and not the other, right? Some might want to only talk about the saving part, and some might only want to talk about the destroying part. But Judas saying, I want to remind you of both of these things. First, Jesus secured the salvation of his people, and then he will destroy those who don't believe in him. So the first example of this is what we call the Exodus, which of you know we've been referencing. God saved his people through the judgment and the destruction of Egypt. The angel of the Lord passed over those who were covered by the blood, but where did the blood come from? A destroyed lamb. It was through the slaughtering of that lamb that people were saved. I think you can see where that one's going. <laughs> 
In the same way, God saved us, saved us through the judgment and destruction of our sin in his son. The same waters that opened the path for the Israelites to deliverance were the same waters that closed and swallowed up and killed all of Pharaoh and his armies. So Judas saying that same he's saying, don't be mistaken. I want to remind you that same Jesus who's really nice and saved you from your sin is the same Jesus who will destroy all those who don't believe in him. Don't be mistaken. Remember both of those things about Jesus and a lot more, but at least both of those things. And he reinforces it with all of these ancient examples. That first one was the Exodus. Now, the thing that I think is interesting that maybe kind of goes over our heads, because when we look at the Bible, like the whole thing's just ancient. But think about it. The people that were reading Jude's letter, even the Exodus, to them at that point, was super old history, wasn't it? So... Now, some people do this kind of, like I said, mental gymnastics thing where they're like, well, that was Old Testament God. We're in New Testament Jesus God version. Uh, Well, if that's the case, why is Jude in the New Testament using in Old Testament, Old Testament examples, because all the examples he gives are ancient. Why does he use those as indications of this is an example of what's happening now and will happen in the future in this, quote unquote, New Testament age? So, like I said, that mental gymnastics thing doesn't work. These examples were even ancient to this original audience as they are to us now. So, uh, after the Exodus, the other example, the second example he gives is the angelic rebellion. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Some angels remain loyal and obedient to their creator, while the others, mentioned here, did not. Those angels who rebelled, it says, God has kept in eternal chains until the judgment of the great day. Not even the angels are spared from, from this. Their day of reckoning will come, just like anyone else who does not believe. The next example is... Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, just as, or in the same way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise, notice how he's saying just as, likewise, meaning it's the same problem we have now. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah indulge in sexual morality. That's not different than what it is now. It's exactly what it is right now. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desire, Serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So notice that phrase, serve as an example, which means God intends for us right now to learn from these historical events as an example. The same Lord that sent those two angels into the city to rescue any righteous people that were there is the same Lord who nuked the city and its inhabitants for their sexual, sexual immorality and unnatural desire. So for those who, ha- who are in Christ, we have no reason to fear the final judgment. We can walk through those waters of judgment safe and sound. But for those who don't believe in Jesus, those waters will one day collapse on them. That's very heavy. And they can have every expectation that eternal fire is reserved for them. So look at verse 8. Jude compares those three examples, the Exodus, the Angelic Rebellion, and Sodom and Gomorrah, to the situation 
of the original audience of the letter. Look at verse 8. In like manner. That's another one of those phrases, like likewise or just as. In like manner, these people that you're facing now, audience of the letter of Jude, these people who have crept in unnoticed, as it says in verse 4, also rely on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So he's saying that same thread of sin that you see in all those ancient examples, it's, it's the same, same problems rising up again. So those serve as an example to reinforce this point. First, Jesus saved the people for himself. Afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. And that pattern is not changing. But that judgment day isn't here yet. So what do, what do we do with the ungodly people in our churches now? You know, do we just say, all right, God, lightning bolt, please. <laughs> um, that is where, that is really kind of more the confusing stuff of what we do as, a, as Christians. The hard stuff that even Jesus with his own uh, disciples had, had to teach them about. So that's where the next example comes in, which is, let's be honest, kind of weird. Look at verse 9. And this will be my next sermon point. Do not presume a blasphemous judgment, but say the Lord rebuke you. I kind of changed the tenses a little bit to make it work for a sermon point. Do not presume a blasphemous judgment, but say the Lord rebuke you. So verse 9 has one of the weirdest stories in the Bible. And it's all in that one verse. When the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses. What? When did that happen? <laughs> this is the only place it's mentioned in the Bible. That's why it's so weird. Isn't it like Enoch? Like the, not Bible. <laughs> yeah, it's from, it's from, yeah, and he, he references Enoch in other places. Um, but yeah, this is, this is almost like a folklore that he's bringing up to, to prove his point. Um, anyway, that's a whole other can of worms. But it's, it's a weird story, but there's a really, really cool lesson here. So it says, when the archangel Michael contending, that's the same verb that Jude commanded us to do, contending with the devil. When the archangel Michael was contending with the devil and disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now. Imagine the intensity of this moment. We're not talking about two kids arguing on a playground uh, or, you know, people arguing over a toy or whatever. Uh, we're talking about these two cosmic characters fighting over the eternal soul of Moses, who also is one of the most influential people in all history in his own right. An archangel of God against the arch nemesis of God, the devil. This is pretty epic and it's just in one verse like i said so the devil is fighting for the body of moses and what does michael say does michael flippantly say to hell with you satan because i mean if there's anyone you can say that to with like i guess a good conscience it's probably the devil <laughs> and if there's any creature like any person uh who has the authority to say something like that you'd think it'd be an archangel right I mean, who's higher than that other than God himself, right? Um, but that's not quite what Michael says. Michael's, it says Michael did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. So Michael remembered it's God's authority and his alone to pronounce judgment. So look at his composure, but also 
the severity in what he says. He's not like, well, it doesn't matter. He says, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord, he's doing it, rebukes you. So not God will destroy you right here, right now. No, he says, the Lord rebuke you. So let's apply that to the spiritual opposition we face today, even within our own churches. Because I think Judas saying, if the archangel Michael, for crying out loud, had this attitude against the devil of all people, uh, then we should follow that example too as mere humans, speaking to other mere humans, no matter how mistaken they might be, or we might be. So when we're faced with bad people that persist with bad ideas, what should we say to them? We don't say, to hell with you, wicked person, I'm done with you. That doesn't really help. We say, that would be a blasphemous uh, presumption of God's judgment on our part to do so. No, we say to them, the Lord rebuke you. Now, that phrase alone is not a lot, but I think, allow me to take this to what I think is the logical extent. So to these kinds of people who continue in their ungodliness, we're not talking about people that sin like one time, you know, or who like made a mistake. Uh, and they're like, okay, yeah, yeah, I, I got you. You're right. No, we're talking about people that, we're talking about false teachers. It means they persist in sin. They've been corrected multiple times and they're just like, forget these people. I, I don't care. I'm gonna keep doing my own thing. No, to those people, we say, God will judge you for this. And anyone who persists in this will be destroyed. So repent of your wicked ways before it's too late. That's what the Lord rebuke you, I think, means more uh, in a more, you know, in more words than that. The Lord rebuke you, four words. Um, even from the most horrific kinds of cults and false teachings, God can save people. He has and continues to save people from all sorts of false teaching. Maybe you guys know crazy stories of that kind of thing who have been delivered from that, that bondage to false teaching or just a blindness to what the true gospel is. I think the point is we don't, we don't mark off the person as guaranteed damned to hell. If they have been designated for hell, it's because God designated that because not because we did. And our ability to know that is fallible. We don't know that. So that's why Michael didn't presume to pronounce a judgment. He says, the Lord rebuke you. Which we can say that in the present time. You're in sin, the Lord rebuke you. Not, oh, you're in sin? Well, you're definitely going to hell. That's presumptuous, right? So we call out a person for the sin they're in, including ourselves. And we describe sin for as bad as it actually is. Saying the Lord rebuke you doesn't mean we sugarcoat it or minimize it or move past it, you know, quickly and, and kind of flippantly. I mean, listen to this and you tell me if you think Jude downplays sin. You guys heard the letter when we first read it, but let's just read this part again. Um, it says, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by, by all that they like unreasoning animals. Wow, that's brutal. Understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they've walked in the way of Cain, abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perish in Korah's rebellion. Those three, those are three references. Cain, you guys probably know the story of that, killed his own brother. That's not the kind of association you'd want. Balaam's error, that's a false prophet who was just trying to, you know, make money. He was just saying what people wanted him to say to make money. That's not, I mean, we still see that today. 
and perished in Korah's rebellion. That's when a bunch of people rebelled and the earth actually opened up and swallowed those people. Uh, it's in the book of Numbers, I think. Anyway, let's continue. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, a shepherd eating his own sheep. Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead. Not just once, <laughs> twice dead. That's how bad it is. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against it. I mean, stick ungodly as many times as you want. Challenge was, was there on display. So anyway, to remind you what point I was making when I was reading that is he clearly does not minimize sin or sugarcoat it, right? The Lord rebuke you. I mean, you know, roasts the sinner and the sin. And, you know, may God have mercy on their soul. Seriously, not just like, you know, like a movie line. But seriously, that, that call to the Lord rebuke you can be a purifying moment for that person. Uh, a, a moment that penetrates that, that blindness that they have. The Lord rebuke you. That can... That has a lot of power to it. Um, so yeah, we say to the unrepentant sinner, the Lord rebuke you and thank God you're hearing this now rather than the final judgment because on that day it's not a rebuke. It's an irrevocable verdict. In other words, too late. So God actually uses us as his mouthpiece to rebuke people and he takes care of the final judgment. The archangel Michael understood that and so should we. So Jude gives us an example of how serious about the problem of ungodliness and ungodly people in our midst, how, how serious we should take that. Uh, and that's at least one of the ways we obey this command to contend for the faith. Just like I said, Michael contended, was contending with the devil when he did that. So the next thing I want to point out is that this problem of ungodliness in the church is subtle. Um, it says um, they're hidden reefs. They're dressed like shepherds during the day, but they actually act like wolves at night feeding themselves. They're waterless clouds, which as a farmer, you look up, you're like, oh, cool, clouds, it's going to rain. And then they, they're swept away. You're just like, well, they just, those clouds disappointed me. Um, they're fruitless trees in late autumn, which means, okay, well, they're going to they're gonna drop the fruit now, right? But they never produce fruit for you. So what's the common factor in these? They, they look a certain way. It's deceptive. It's hard to tell. They appear to be the real thing, but they aren't. Um, and we expect them to do what they're really supposed to do, but they don't. So look at verse 16. And Jude actually gives us red flags or indicators for these kinds of people in our midst, which would be the next thing I highlight from the text. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. I mean, how did Sodom and Gomorrah get as bad as it did? It wasn't just like a one day. It just, they just turned into that, you know, debauchery, right? It's, it's a thing that slowly takes over. So I'm highlighting this verse because 
These are the kinds of things that are subtle, hard to notice, but they take over and they consume and they, they're a cancer to the church. Grumbling, malcontent, uh, being a loudmouth boaster, showing favoritism. So th- these things are red flags and we have to be on alert for them. It's a lot more helpful than just saying ungodly deeds. This is a little more specific. So I think this also explains uh, like how unnoticeable they are. Grumbling and malcontent. I mean, grumbling is not like yelling about what you're upset about. It's more kind of on the side, like, you know, you're kind of complaining about it on the side. It's more like a, like a G-Smith thing. Um, malcontentness, it's subtle. Um, you know, it's a phenomenon that's not just in the church. Uh, of course, in this case, we're talking about the church. But it, it's subtle. Like, you go to a meeting, and then just someone says, why did we change the room for the meeting? And it just, it's like a little thing for, it's like a little thing like that. Why are the, why are the chairs different? And then it, it just adds up, and it's just like, I hate working here. I hate this place. And it becomes that. <laughs> You'll notice, I mean, maybe you've already have noticed it if you work somewhere or, you know, in a classroom or something. It's not like day one you come in, you're just like, I just hate this place. Yeah. Uh, it, but I'm saying that we have effect on each other with those little grumbles that we communicate to each other. And it, like I said, it, bec- it becomes a cancer. It is a cancer. Uh, so grumbling and malcontentness, that's hard to tell. It's not like a, like a visible thing. Uh, Loudmouth boasters. Now this one... Uh, you know, it, it is more obvious. It says loud mouthed. Um, but there are actually ways to boast that's done in a way to appear humble. Uh, you know, there are people ironically say humble brag, which is just like, that doesn't really fix it. <laughs> there are actual humble brags where people, um, they look very humble, but they're actually just patting themselves on the back in front of everyone. Uh, and that is that happens in the church too. You've been in classrooms with that kind of person for sure. Um, but that happens in the church too. And, yeah, we'd be fools to think that doesn't happen amongst Christians. Showing favoritism to gain advantage. I mean, if you cozy up to the right people, it can be for your selfish gain. So if you pick the right kind of people to be like, wow, you're, you know, you're just so good at this, <laughs> uh, at this church stuff, you're, 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 about to get, you're about to get a promotion. Like, if you, if you know the right people, if you're sneaky enough... You can gain advantage over other people. Uh, and, it's, and it's hard to tell because it sounds like, wow, like, that's a very nice person. They compliment me. Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't look ungodly all the time. It's very deceptive. Just like the loudmouth boasting thing. Oh, yeah, the other night, you know, we had this wonderful Bible study at my house. And, uh, you know, after I led the Bible study and like, oh, I helped this person get saved. And just like, wow, that's a great result. But they're kind of like inceptioning you like planting the idea in your mind that they are so great <laughs> uh and it may, and it sounds very godly anyway i think you get the point that's not the kind of behavior we have in christ that's not who we are in christ and that's why jude says in the next verse but you you're you're not like that you know grumbling malcontent showing favoritism again advantage loudmouth boaster verse 17 which will be the next point I highlight. You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude knows that the beloved of God take the purity of his message and the horror of his judgments that we read very seriously. 
But unfortunately, ungodly people do not take the faith once for all delivered to the saints seriously. And neither do they take the reality of his judgment very seriously. So we must remember and remind each other of exactly what Judah's been reminding us this whole time and what the apostles predicted. It says, in the last time, there will be, will be scoffers, guaranteed scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. And it is these people who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. Scoffing at God's word, following our passions, that's what brings division and shows a lack of the Holy Spirit. But Christians are different. We are not devoid of the Spirit. Instead, we are filled and unified by the Spirit. So verse 20, the next verse I would highlight. Keep yourselves in the love of God. So this yourselves is cool because it's you individually, but also you plural. Keep yourselves in the love of God. So he's commanding us. Uh, this is a, something for which we have a responsibility. Um, there's something individual about this and there's something communal about this responsibility. So how do we keep ourselves in the love of God, according to Jude? Um, so the structure of the sentences from verses 20 to 21, 22, 23, it's an interesting order. And what I mean by that is that it's not written in the simple first do this, first know this and then this and then this. Uh, the root command is actually kind of in the middle where it says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And then it has the other gerund ing verbs describing how we keep ourselves in the love of God. So I would restructure it this way. Keep yourselves in the love of God by building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Okay, so let's go. Those are three things. We keep ourselves in the love of God by building ourselves up in our most holy faith. Okay, so, you know, something for you to consider is how do we build each other up in our most holy faith? Um, that, that phrasing, building yourself up, it, uh, it appears in that book, Ephesians, quite often. Um, and in the book of Hebrews, it talks about that every day, you know, exhort one another with uh, the word of God. And, you know, this is not rocket science. The way you build yourselves up in your most holy faith is... Learning the Bible together and exhorting one another with the word of God. Uh, yeah, pretty, pretty straightforward there. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Um, again, the Holy Spirit, you know, earlier it said scoffing at the word of God, which shows worldliness and a lack of the Holy Spirit. Whereas praying in the Holy Spirit is you pray consistent with God's will. You pray uh, within that unity between the church and God. Um, yeah, praying in the Holy Spirit is telling you uh, the way in which you pray, which is consistent with the Holy Spirit. What are the, what's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, that whole list, um, praying in such a way. Okay, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That's another way we keep ourselves in the love of God. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now that verb, waiting, is... I mean, that's what this whole thing hangs on. In what way do we wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ? Um, and allow me to use an anecdote. So I'm a huge fan of soccer, and there's been a bunch of soccer games this summer. And, you know, I get really excited for each game. And I watch the game with, like, you know, whoever's there to, to watch it with me. And so for me, waiting for the soccer game means I watch all the an analysis shows. 
I, you know, I put, if, I, if my team is playing, I put on the jersey of my team um, <laughs> as if I'm playing with them. Um, and so waiting, waiting for that game, for that moment where it comes is, is an intensely, I'm, I'm actively waiting for that thing anticipating it, even preparing myself with knowledge of the players and the, and the strategy and everything. Whereas another person waiting for the game is like, oh, yeah, I said I was going to watch this game with you. Let me watch it with you. <laughs> so those are two different kinds of uh, waiting. One is, when's it on? Oh, it comes on at 7. Okay, well, you know, I'll set an alarm or something. And then the other waiting is, it's all I'm thinking about, and I'm preparing for it accordingly. So waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, you know, put on the jersey as it were <laughs> um and uh also waiting for for the mercy of our lord jesus christ involves the, the previous things building yourselves up in your most holy faith praying in the holy spirit there's a lot more to say there for sure um but waiting is not just like okay well i mean it's gonna happen so i guess i'll just be on autopilot for now uh waiting is is in this case is a, is a very active uh like you're, you're cognizant of it and you're eagerly anticipating. Okay. Next thing is, there's, there's a command not just to keep ourselves in the love of God, but also save others. This is what I was talking about, that it's not just like an individual thing. You take care of your own, you know, salvation. Uh, it says to save others. So in, one sen- in, what, in what sense do we save others? Because, you know, as we know, as we teach at the school, only Jesus saves people. We don't, we don't save other people. Um, when people are dead, you can't pray for them to be saved. Uh, that's not a thing. In what sense do we save others? How do we snatch people from the fire? Um, well, just like we were saying earlier, one of the ways we, we save people, we snatch them from the fire, we wake those people up, is to tell them, the Lord rebuke you. Um, elsewhere here it says to have, to have mercy on those who doubt. So how do you comfort people who are doubting? To reassure them. <laughs> Uh, not just say, oh, yeah, I understand why you're doubting. I don't really have a way to <laughs> fix that. That's becoming, that's very popular these days for people to be like, yeah, God's comfortable with my doubt. Which, it does say to have mercy on those who doubt. So it's not like if you have doubt, you know, I, I don't want to talk to you. Uh, but that's not the end of the, of the conversation. <laughs> um, it's, but some people think that's, a, that's like the end in itself. I have doubt, therefore, you know, I have a relationship with God. It's like, no, well, he deals with the doubt by reassuring you. So anyway, in what way do we save others? Uh, have mercy on those who doubt is, is showing them the ways in which they, they shouldn't be in doubt. That they can be sure of, of who God is, of his love for them, of, his, of the salvation he provided in Jesus for them. Um, it also says to uh, show mercy with fear. This is... Somewhat different than the show mercy with doubt thing. Uh, it says to hate even the garment itself that is stained by the flesh. So from what I can tell, that seems to be, you know, you're dealing with people that struggle uh, maybe more seriously with, with sin, more obviously, more persistently. And it says to hate even the garment itself that's stained by the flesh. That we can, you know, have that, have that balance of I love you and I care for you. And we're going we're gonna to overcome, we're going to get through this, this sin together. Like, we hate this sin in our lives. Uh, we're hating even the garment itself that's stained by our impurity. Uh, and verse 24, 
is really the culmination of this study, which is uh, a response in worship. That's, I mean, that's the culmination of, of reality. That's what it's all going to, is uh, God being revealed to us face-to-face with Jesus and glorifying Him. Now, to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. That would most certainly be a highlight for me from the text. (laughs) Jude 24 through 25. This is actually uh, one of the most iconic, what's called a doxology in the Bible, which is uh, basically like a, a scriptural formula of worship. Um, an expression, a great expression of praise to God. Um, and this is the end of it all. So in what way does this doxology pertain to the contents of this letter? In what way is God worthy of praise? Well, look at all that he does. It says, he is able to keep you from stumbling. Now notice the word similarity, keep. Where, does, where else does that appear in this, in this book? Well, one of the other places where it appears is where it says those angels who rebelled against him he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day of judgment kept in those chains now the same all-powerful grip that god has on those enemies of his just consider that now in the reverse you're chained you're chained to to him you're chained to jesus that's the grip he has on you so in the same way that, man, those demons are not going to win against God. That same like guarantee of, I already know who the winner is, is the guarantee, but in, in your favor. <laughs> he, he, has, he is able to keep you from stumbling. In the same way he's able to keep those demons from winning. So that's, I mean, that's the kind of bondage I want to be in. The bondage to, to righteousness, to Jesus. And that's, you know, that's what the, the Apostle Paul says. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're a slave to righteousness. So that's, that's a good kind of slavery. That's the, that's the slave master I want. <laughs> it says he's able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. I mean, imagine yourself blameless. Imagine yourself totally presentable. Uh... All the skeletons in the closet are gone. I mean, with great joy. It says he's going to have great joy doing that. I mean, imagine my joy. <laughs> imagine your joy. It says he has great joy doing that. So he's not doing it begrudgingly. I got to present this idiot blameless. <laughs> it says he's going to present you blameless. And he's able to do this and will do this with great joy. <laughs> It says, the only God. That's, of course, important like we said before. There's, there's a specific identity to this God. We're not talking about, you know, the God of all those shelves at Barnes & Noble, like I said earlier. This is this God who is specified our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord. To, get, to this God we just described, to Him be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time now and forever. Amen. So to recap, I'll just say the points and then we're done. So verse three, contend for the faith. That was once for all delivered to the saints. 
Why? Because verse 4, certain people have crept in on notice who pervert the grace of God and deny Jesus. Verse 5, I want to remind you that Jesus or the Lord who saved the people afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Um, in verse 9, to those who don't believe, don't presume a blasphemous judgment, but say to them, the Lord rebuke you. In verse 16, it says these people are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Those are those red flags I was talking about. Sorry, verse 17, it says, You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ to take God's word seriously. Verse 20, keep yourselves in the love of God. We talked briefly, admittedly, about uh, how to do that. And verse 24, this is the end of all things. Worship of God. To him be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority forever. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this time. Uh, thank you all. Uh, thank you for all that's written here in the book of Jude. Thank you that it was preserved for us to be able to read it here. So many miles away from where it originally was written. So many years after it was written. Um, and thank you for being so wise as to have this letter sent to us by the spirit in such a way that it makes sense. And it applies to our lives right now. So thank you God for your wisdom and for using this moment to build us up together. I thank you for this group here, uh, this moment that they, that they share together and hopefully uh, many more in the future, that they can uh, keep each other, that they can save each other, snatch each other from the fire and um, eagerly wait for that day for the appearing of the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, thank you, God, for your spirit that unifies us, that fills us up. And I ask for uh, your guidance also in our discussion time together. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.